Hello there, this is episode number 101 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for joining. I'm William Armstrong here in a not yet quarantined Istanbul. I hope you're all doing well. Uh, Extraordinary times, to be fair. Coronavirus, COVID-19. If you're in quarantine or self-isolation or doing a bit of social distancing, a special hello to you. I hope you're doing all right. Uh, Throughout this period, I'm going to try and keep the podcast going for the next few weeks and months and years, if it comes to that. Obviously, I think like a lot of people, I'll be spending a bit more time at home. So I definitely have time on my hands uh, to put the podcast together. It all just depends really on uh, whether I can get our guests on board. I don't know how it's going to work out, to be honest. Uh, Perhaps nobody is going to want to talk. Maybe their heads won't be in the right place. It's a bit of uh, trial and error to come, I think, to be honest. But I will try uh, to keep it going. And uh, if not, I'll let you know on Twitter and Facebook and whatnot. This episode was actually recorded before things escalated. In it, we hear from Omar Kadkoy. He's a policy analyst at the Ankara-based think tank Tepav, specializing on Syrian migrants in Turkey. He actually himself came over from Damascus back in 2012 and permanently from 2014, so he knows firsthand of what he speaks. In our conversation, we talk about the legal situation of the over 3.5 million Syrians currently in Turkey, as well as integration challenges, local hostility, and the recent drama after President Erdogan announced that the Turkish side of the border with Greece would be opened for migrants to cross. But before we get into all that, let me just remind you again that if you haven't already, you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member. Membership via Patreon gets you various extras, including transcripts in both English and Turkish of every interview published on the podcast via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive, which includes a number of extra interviews not previously published on the podcast. Members also receive access to an exclusive discount deal, which gets you a hefty 35% off the cover price of books published in IB Taurus's extensive Turkey and Ottoman history category. Turkey Book Talk members get a special code for a 35% discount on over 100 books in that series of academic and general interest titles, including physical books, pre-orders and e-books. Finally, as a member, you also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself, covering Turkish and international fiction and poetry, history, politics and journalism in the Middle East and Europe. That whole archive used to be available online, but nowadays a Turkey Book Talk membership is the only way to access it. Ideal, no doubt, if you're looking to uh, while away the hours in quarantine. So to become a member, just pledge a minimum of $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page. New episodes are published every two weeks, so membership costs no more than $6 per month. If you're feeling particularly generous or want to pledge more, then you'll certainly be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. Members are only charged when a new episode is published, so there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Omar Kadkoy. We address the longer history of migration in Turkey and the Ottoman Empire a bit later on. But we started by talking about the very recent controversy over Turkey opening its western border gates to Europe, prompting thousands of migrants, reportedly largely of Afghan origin actually, rather than Syrians, to try to cross over into Greece. I asked Omar Kadkoy whether he was surprised at how all this played out. 
I have to say both surprised and not surprised. Before, it was more of um, as a threatening statement that like if the EU does not support Turkey further, whether in, it, in its um, foreign policy in Syria or especially by supporting the 4 million uh, immigrants in the country, we might open the border and have like, you know, hundreds of thousands of immigrants reaching Europe. That was the way officials used the refugee card b- b- before but this time it was like they, they took action and they said like, you know, we're not going to try to stop immigrants who want to cross to reach Europe. But apparently the other um, at, the, at the other end of the border, the Greek officials, politicians and the army were somehow not that much um, welcoming, let me say, of, of what, what has been going on at the border. And we've seen how tear gas bombs were, were shot at the um, immigrants who gathered at the border. And the EU, as, 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 as a bloc itself, was um, not willing to repeat what, what happened in 2015 and, and 2016, or like early months of, of 2016. And they immediately mobilized front decks and um, they sent um, financial support to EU in the amount of like almost 700 million euros. So this shows you that Brussels or the EU as a bloc does not want this irregular um, influx of immigrants to repeat itself once again. But it also shows that Turkey has escalated its maybe threatening way by saying that, you know, those who want to cross the border, they have the freedom to do so and we're not going to be minding that. So this shows that both sides are in need of reviving dialogue immediately because gambling over the lives of, of, of refugees and immigrants is not in favor of anybody. So um, they need to immediately, let me say, obtain the whole issue like before it, it unfolds in a in an ugly manner, let me say. So we'll see. Maybe um, by Monday, um, things would be uh, a bit more clear of, of how the two sides will proceed on what's happening at the Turkish Greek borders. Let's just uh, take a step back. The yeah. Turkey EU refugee deal that we're talking about, this deal went into effect in March 2016, so four years ago. Could you just talk about what it actually involved, like very basically, what did the two sides agree to and has it been implemented in those four years? I can tell you um, that it hasn't been implemented fully because it's it's basically was it was built to deal with irregular crossings over the Aegean. The majority of the points that constructed the the, the statement they they have a direct relation with with um, irregular crossings and how to support Turkey or the the capacity of its institutions to help Syrians or others in the country. And effectively, this deal, if you ask me, turned Turkey from a transit country or a country of immigration to one of destination. Because because that was that was the um, implicit purpose of, of of this statement. Let me let me say that like what has been done or implemented and what not been implemented of, of the points that were mentioned. You have, for example, the EU custom union agreement with Turkey and upgrading that. That is that is on hold to begin with. The negotiations did not see any fruits uh, on that specific track. Um, another thing, there is the um, visa liberalization issue as well, which did not happen. Uh, another that was point. The, the liberalized, so making it easier for Turkish citizens to get visas to visit Europe. Exactly. Like this is also um, unfulfilled. Uh, there was also um, a point to re-energize the accession, uh, the accession process of, of Turkey into the EU, which is also still suspended and um, it's 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 not near even to progressing in, in the in the first place. So I would say those are the three main points that did not see light whatsoever in the last four years. The overall picture of of these three points is, let me say, stagnating for the last four years, but. 
if we talk about what has been done so far under under that deal, the EU supported Turkey financially by by supporting um, the government with three billion um, euros. That was the first trench off of the financial package that was agreed upon. And now we are slowly getting into how to dispense the second trench. And if you ask me, this is one of the main points on immigration that is making things very chaotic between the two sides. Because the Turkish government wants to directly receive the funds in bulk to its institutions and they will see to dispense this this amount of money on, on different aspects and according to the needs of immigrants. Whereas the EU, on the other hand, they, 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 are, they, they are asking for transparency um, assurances and access actually to how the Turkish government will be dispensing that money and the Turkish government is not giving that sort of access to the EU. But we can say that the main issue here about funds specifically is that it is slowly flowing into Turkey and this is what what this what makes the Turkish government uh, mad at the, at the EU and the EU sees some sh- structural shortcomings capacity wise that does not allow it to um, flush um, large sums of money into the Turkish system to do so let alone the um, issue of transparency and um, access to how the money is spent that is one Two, um, you have this um, one-on-one relocation mechanism that was agreed upon saying that for every Syrian being returned to Turkey from Greek islands, another Syrian will be resettled from Turkey to the EU, taking into account UN vulnerability criteria. Here again, you have two, um, let me say, sides of, of how it is going. First, it's it's actually going in a very slow manner because uh, if you look at how many Syrians were um, relocated to EU, member states under this one-on-one resettlement scheme, like for the last four years, the number is 25, almost 26,000 Syrians. So this is basically a very small number compared to um, the ones Turkey is hosting. And this shows you that the EU cannot or couldn't so far agree on um, a migration policy for this specific um, resettlement scheme to compel all of of its members to have more um, people resettled. So you have that. Then when you have the other um, side of, of, of that point that says, according to UN vulnerability criteria, the government in Turkey says that the EU only picks those who are, um, let me say, in good shape, quote unquote, to immediately jump into the labor market and become active uh, members of the um, European economy, whereas they leave those who are um, in need of medical attention or those who are um, old um, immigrants in Turkey. And um, that's a cherry picking sort of way of doing that. So this is, I would say, this is a functioning point, but not completely the way it was envisioned to be, because like 26,000 um, Syrians being resettled into the EU under that mechanism is definitely a very slow way of resettling the millions of, of Syrians who are residing in Turkey. Yet uh, you add to it ha- like the way with which um, the EU is selecting maybe people who are eligible to resettlement, which makes um, resentment even higher from the Turkish side. So today, or in 2015, we have around 900,000 um, immigrants crossed from Turkey into Greece, then uh, moved moved on to other European countries. And then the agreement was reached in March 2016, and the number of crossings over the Aegean fell down to 175,000. And the numbers kept going down and down. Uh, we saw a slight surge in numbers in 2018, and like maybe a bigger one in 2018. 
19 when the when the total number of, of people who crossed the Aegean especially over like with boats was like around 60,000 so this is definitely far less than what happened in 2015 and what happened in 2016 and we have seen that like you know there are very few member states who are actively engaged in this issue namely Germany is is one of them and we have a couple of um, other countries such as maybe France and Netherlands who come um, second and third in how much cooperative they are in taking in more and more, more Syrians or other immigrants from Turkey but with the remaining um, 24 or 23 uh, member states it's very difficult to have that consensus among them to take more refugees from Turkey. On the other hand if you ask what the money did or how did the money sent from the EU to Turkey help Syrians in Turkey or other immigrants well it, it did a lot actually because to begin with you have around 1.5 million um, immigrants in Turkey benefiting from monthly financial support in the amount of 120 Turkish liras, uh, and this is one of the biggest um, humanitarian schemes the EU have ever financed so far and there are funds going to the Ministry of National Education where like around 175 schools are supposed to be built to accommodate uh, more Turkish and Syrian students and other immigrants in schools and have them like pursuing their um, educational attainment you have around 180 health centers, uh, immigrant health centers uh, opened where the Syrians, Afghans, Iraqis can go there and um, get treatment uh, for free and these centers employ Syrian doctors and nurses uh, so like now you are not only providing free healthcare services supported by the EU but you are also creating um, employment opportunities for health professionals to work so maybe if, if I want to summarize the EU-Turkey deal in, in, in two sentences there are parts of it that are properly functioning and they have direct impact uh, on the lives of Syrians and Turkish citizens in, in Turkey yet there are parts that are maybe more political in, in, in nature and require more dialogue and cooperation to be fulfilled maybe in the near future or in the medium to long term future. Now, in Turkey, uh, we should highlight uh, that the official status given to migrants from Syria uh, is temporary guest, not refugee. Could you just go into the details of why that's the case? You know, what's the difference between these two statuses and what difference does it give in terms of rights, etc.? Uh, yes, of course. And this is actually a very important point to talk about because Turkey is, 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 is a party to 1951 uh, Refugee Convention and the 1967 Protocol. Yet Turkey maintains a geographical limitation to the convention, which means that it retains um, resettlement to a third country as the most preferred durable solution for refugees. Meaning that first Turkey recognizes people who are fleeing events that happened only in Europe. This is what, what the um, pertaining the geographical limitation means. And it can, it can only extend the refugee status to those who come from Europe uh, in general. But when you look at the composition of, if we are to use international um, law terms, asylum seekers and refugees in Turkey, the majority of them are from either Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Iran, Somalia, and some other countries. Hence, technically, the country or the Turkish government does not grant the refugee status to those asylum seekers or those um, people who were immigrating to Turkey because of the events that were happening in their countries. Yet, because you have this mass influx of forced displaced population, especially after 2011, and because you have this geographical limitation, Turkey needed to create, um, let me say, an alternative legal um, status for, for, for especially Syrians. Hence, the legal status of, of Syrians nowadays being foreigners under temporary protection. And this 
is actually, this is explainable in the following sense. If Turkey had granted 3.5 million Syrians the refugee status, this means that the 3.5 million Syrians should be resettled to three, to, um, third countries. And, you know, in 2019, you have only 65,000 people around the globe resettled to third countries who were under the, um, refugee status. And only 10,000 of them were f- resettled from Turkey. So this means that automatically the 3.5 million Syrians would have stayed in Turkey indefinitely until they are resettled every each one of them to third countries and this was not like you know uh, a feasible option let me say by by the Turkish government hence this geographical limitation and the the sheer number of, of, of Syrians who started coming to Turkey from 2011 until 2016 necessitated that the government should do something else and it introduced the legal status of foreigners under temporary protection now the status in itself it does not give you maybe the full rights as some people would argue but i would say that the the status in itself allows syrians to basically access health and education services at a later point this was complemented with the um, work permit regulation allowing syrians to formally work in the turkish labor market and they have almost all the rights any turkish citizen would enjoy except for for like voting or participating in elections yet there are some maybe revisions that could be made to maybe let or allow this legal status to become a little bit more progressive. And here I'm talking about when it comes to the labor market, for example, a Syrian under temporary protection is only allowed to work formally, meaning that they can only get a work permit uh, in the province of registration. So when you look at where Syrians are located now, like one third of them are located in, in, in the south and southeast region of Turkey, where an employment rate was, was higher than the national one even before the arrival of Syrians, which means that there are very few job opportunities. And when you have more people competing for the same jobs, there is going to be tension. So what Syrians did is leaving these provinces and go and seek informal job opportunities elsewhere. So um, we need maybe to revise the legal status of Syrians. Now, you've done a fair amount of work, I think, on integration efforts and official yeah. policies to make Syrians a more permanent fixture in Turkey. Could you just reflect, like, what has stood out in that work? You know, have things, how have things changed over the years? Has there been a shift in official sentiment, really, in the last couple of years? Or give us the overview of that, really. Yeah. This is a very good question. And um, at, at, at the beginning of, of um, Syrians' arrival to Turkey, the government followed the discourse, a religious one, by um, calling um, Syrians as the Muhajirin or like the, the, the immigrants and Turks were the Ansar and we are there to um, open our houses to them and have them until the war settles down so they can go back. Uh, this was, this lasted maybe for the first two, three years. Then in 2014, the, um, temporary protection status was introduced and then they became foreigners uh, and under temporary protection. And yet even then, uh, the government kept on labeling Syrians as guests who are in Turkey for a short period of time. But then years uh, started passing by and more Syrians came. But then in 2016, um, it was the first time when Turkey 
he intervened militarily in, in, in Syria. And since then, this discourse of the government slightly started to shift from those who are our brothers and sisters in, 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 in religion to guests. Then we are to the discourse that said that we are now intervening so we can help Syrians go back to their homeland. So in, in this short, like, you know, um, view of what happened, or at least how the government has been um, labeling or selling uh, the presence of Syrians in Turkey, shows you that the government never intended of hosting Syrians indefinitely. But then prospects of voluntarily repatriation are not there because, well, Syria is not a safe country. And with the very weak efforts of resettlement, this would infer that, like, Syrians are actually here to stay. Now, the legal status in itself is not that helpful because, I mean, it's a problem if you if we would have Syrians under temporary protection in 20 years from now. This means that, you know, they are still guests and um, they are supposed or expected to go back one day. So if we are to talk about integration, you we need to start from the legal status itself. I'm not saying that everybody will go back, but I, I, I assume that, you know, a good number of Syrians will stay here. The problem here is them staying under temporary protection for the next decade or more. Because today we don't, we don't have an integration policy in Turkey. And this is, of course, not a one size fits all sort of like, you know, policy. Because what works in Germany, for example, does not mean it would work in Turkey per se. No, it is going to be more subject into what sort of um, dynamics and factors we have in this country. But we cannot really talk about integration when we like a policy that says the Turkish integration model is based on XYZ sort of points. So what we have now is actually integration by interaction. Syrians are integrating themselves by themselves. And you see now Tur Syrians in all of the 81 provinces in Turkey with different um, levels of Turkish language skills, somehow managing to um, work overwhelmingly informally in the labor market. And uh, around like 650,000 Syrians enrolled in public schools. So they managed to weave themselves in the, the fabrics of the Turkish society by themselves. Yes, the government allowed them to access public services, but we don't have an integration policy. To begin with, an integration policy in Turkey, maybe in the future or for the future, should emphasize language skills because that's a springboard to integration. If you do not speak the language, you cannot have better jobs. You cannot properly take your children to um, hospitals if they need medical care. You have some difficulties in, in discussing their educational performance in school, so on and so forth. But at the same time, this should be accompanied, as I said before, with changes in the legal status. It doesn't necessarily mean that they should immediately jump to um, citizenship, but at least the legal status should lead them to that point in a gradual phases. Maybe we can start with temporary residence, residency permits, then long-term residency permits, and um, along the way, there could be criteria to tick before you get the right to apply for the um, Turkish citizenship. And I would I need to emphasize that, you know, since 2016, when President Erdogan said that we need or we will um, grant the Turkish citizenship to Syrians who are of an added value to our economy, uh, field of science or arts, now we have 110,000 um, Syrians 
who became citizens of Turkey. Half of them are below the age of 18. But nobody knows on which basis are these Syrians selected, whether they go through a process in terms of checking their language skills, whether they go through um, a civil integration courses, that is like if they are aware of the history of Turkey, um, its political structure, what sort of rights and obligations they have once they become citizens, so on and so forth. So it's a very ambiguous subject, let me say. And because it is constructed in that ambiguous manner, Turks are not actually feeling that Syrians should be granted citizenship. 76% of Turks say that Syrians should not be become um, citizens of Turkey. And this shows you that there is a resentment against Syrians to begin with. But all of these, like the, especially the, the, the um, discourse of the government, I would say, has helped in um, building the anti-sentiment against Syrians. And the economy plays a great factor in that because the Turkish economy has not been doing well for the last three, four years. And um, just a couple of days ago, some polls showed that around 80% of, of, of Turks say that it was Syrians who damaged um, the Turkish economy. And what echoes in the back of their mind every time they mention the economy is probably the $40 billion President Erdogan talks about every now and then as, as a spent amount of money on Syrians, whereas Turks feel that they are neglected and they are left out. Hence, you have the perceptions of um, Syrians receiving salaries from, from the government, whereas it's like, you know, funds coming from the EU, but they have to collect that money through certain um, ATMs and certain um, institutions. So in, in, in a nutshell, when you have a badly performing economy and ambiguity regarding what to do with Syrians, because it's a little bit um, simplistic to say that all of the Syrians will go back and definitely we're not going to see hundreds of thousands of Syrians being resettled to third countries. So it's very logically the way of thinking that Syrians are going to stay in Turkey. So we need to act accordingly. And the more we prolong having an integration policy, the more implementing it, if it sees light, will become harder. Because, you know, it's difficult to teach Turkish to someone who is 45 or 40 years old, whereas it's much easier had he started that eight or nine years ago, the minute they arrived into Turkey. So it's going to have consequences if we delay the introduction of, of, of an integration policy, yet it is definitely going to be much better than not having one at all and um, just keeping Syrians under temporary protection status for an unknown period. As you mentioned there, we've seen in the last couple of years, anti-refugee, anti-Syrian sentiment has risen uh, in Turkey. As you say there, you know, many complain about Syrians <coughs> taking jobs, undercutting wages, getting free benefits from the state, etc. It's quite familiar stuff. One of the sentiments that isn't often reflected outside of Turkey, I think, is this rather maybe conservative sentiment that sort of looks down on Syrians for fleeing the war, saying, why, why are they here? Why aren't they fighting for their country? That's one that I think is probably also worth mentioning because that's what is sometimes it, said. It, it, it is, and it, it shows you um, how much Turks are um, proud citizens of their country and their history, and there is nothing um, wrong with that, certainly. But it doesn't mean that Syrians did not fight for their country. Uh, on the contrary, um, they are still fighting for their country, but the way this fighting began and, and how it changed um, during the last nine years is definitely um, something worthy of, of, of discussion. But it doesn't, I have to say that, um, you know, Syrians have been fighting and they are still fighting for their country. But this is something worthy to mention. For Turks, when, when they say that, you know, why they are not fighting for their country, I think they should also know that 
Syrians or a number of Syrians or a group of Syrians of the Syrian population are in fight against their own government, at the beginning at least. This was a civil war. It was not a country in, 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 in a war with, a, then, with another country. So like, you know, it's not how it is coded into their minds because of the Turkish um, history of how the Republic was built. That is not the case in Syria. And this is a big difference between the two um, countries. And then you had different interventions in favor of this side and that side, which actually made things worse for especially the Syrian people. So I would say that it's an important point that you raised, but it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, Syrians are not or did not fight for their country. One thing that many people talk about in Turkey is is the country's history as a receiver of migrants. Mm. You know, the Republic of Turkey was founded following the uh, collapse of the Ottoman Empire um, as millions of Muslim migrants flocked into into the country uh, following the, the loss of Ottoman territories in the Balkans, the Caucasus and the Middle East. And uh, there have also since then been other less well-known flows of migrants into Turkey over the decades, on the Balkans, for example, in the, in the uh, 80s and 90s. Just talk a bit about this history of migration, how the um, flow of Syrian migrants and refugees fits into this history or is perhaps different from, from this broader history of migration in Turkey. Well, what happened after 2011 just fits into this Turkish history of having hundreds of thousands of of immigrants coming from different places into Turkey. But there are differences and and actually major ones, especially in the um, history of the Turkish um, Republic. Because to begin with, at no point before 2011, millions of immigrants uh, or forcibly displaced immigrants in in the case of Syrians got into Turkey before 2011. So this is a big distinction in, 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 in Turkey's history of, 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 of migration. That's one. Two, uh, maybe with the exception of what happened in, in the 90s when, when Iraqis came to Turkey, a good number of those who came since the 1920s to Turkey were, were somehow of Turkish um, descent from, from Balkans or from Hungary or even from, from, from Greece. So this made their lives somehow easier easier because they had the Turkish heritage, they had a certain command of, of Turkish language and made their integration somehow smoother into the Turkish society. Whereas in, in, in 2011 onward, when we are talking about the Syrian case, you have millions of um, certain ethnicity coming into the country with no Turkish heritage whatsoever, with very minor um, maybe exceptions. They do not speak the same language and actually there is, let me say, a historical resentment of not Syrians but Arabs in in, in overall about um, you know being those who took not the part of the um, Ottoman Empire but went with 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 the British and they were perceived or they are perceived as as backstabbers. So you know the initial um, welcoming of Turks was based on um, a humanitarian aspect and it was also based on religious connotations as well. But the more Syrians stayed in the country, the more this um, religious and welcoming discourse started running on fumes. And this is why, or this takes us back to the point that this is why we need an integration policy for these historical differences. Having immigrants coming to Turkey at different um, times for the last decades with Turkish heritage is one thing. Having millions of Arabs coming to your country with no Turkish heritage and no policy to 
overcome that bridge that gap makes things even worse and this is why why this is why we have nowadays um this sentiment like you know turks look at syrians especially as aliens they say like only eight percent of turks say they are culturally similar to syrians whereas 60 percent of syrians say they are culturally similar to turks and this shows you how radical per- the perceptions are between the two sides people from syria say that like you know we are like turks or like we are culturally similar similar to turks whereas a very very small portion of the Turkish society says we are culturally similar to syrians how do you like you know bring the number um, numbers closer you need to make the citizens of turkey see that you know we are doing efforts to integrate those millions of, of syrians into our value chains into our um, way of living into our culture and you need to do socio-cultural courses you need to have um, language courses you need to have courses talking about the history of turkey politically and economically and you know explain what sort of rights and obligations they have otherwise i have to say that you know the more turkey pursues or keeps its um let me say near bankrupting um discourse on syrians in turkey resentment will will rise and um every now and then we see unfortunate events of turks taking matters into their own hand by beating um syrians up um vandalizing their properties uh, accusing them of sometimes wrong charges putting the, the their lives at risk and um you know the government is in similar cases i have to say is is, is passive because uh, we don't know whether these um syrians are being compensated for the damages their properties suffer and we don't know whether those turks who actually took matters into their own hand are um charged legally speaking which could be actually a way to not allow similar incidents to um grow in scale but with the lack of that that sort of transparency we don't know how how the government is dealing with similar incidents and i need to emphasize once again the need for an integration policy if we are to continue in a healthy manner from now onward that was omar katko and many thanks to him for joining for episode number 111 uh, while i've still got your ear let me remind you to check out turkey book talk's very excellent partner initiative turkey recap Turkey Recap is an email newsletter put together by journalists Razier Akkoch and Diego Cupolo. It's a very useful weekly one-stop shop that concisely packages together all the major developments in Turkey over the past seven days. Dropping into your email inbox every Thursday, Turkey Recap also includes links to interesting articles as well as some excellent puns. Search for Turkey Recap on Twitter to subscribe or follow the link that I will put in our show notes including at armstrongwilliam.wordpress.com. If you're a fan of Turkey Book Talk, Consider becoming a member on Patreon to support us. Membership gets you that IB Taurus Bloomsbury book discount, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive, and access to an archive of 231 book reviews written by me. Perfect, of course, for whiling away those hours in self-isolation. To sign up, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page. Also, do please rate or review Turkey Book Talk on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via Twitter or like our Facebook page. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners. So please send any recommendations, feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk, hopefully in a couple of weeks, stay safe, look out for each other and thank you very much for listening. Gezdim dolaştım Anladım ki